Attention Life Tips listeners, looking for better ways to become better, smarter, faster, and wiser? Well, listening to Life Tips is a great start, but how about if we gave you an easier way to listen? Introducing the WebmasterRadio.fm mobile app, now available for iPhone and Android. Listen to Life Tips and even more programs that will help you build to a better health, wealth, and lifestyle. Download the WebmasterRadio.fm mobile app in the iTunes Store or in Google Play today. Feeling better? Looking better? Making life better? It's Life Tips. We'll explore the latest innovations, introduce you to the latest products, and bring you the tips from experts and environmental pioneers to help you lead a better life. Life Tips. Making your life smarter better, faster, wiser. Here are your hosts. Welcome back to the Life Tips Show, everyone. I'm here with Ken Tucker. Ken, welcome. Hello. Thank you very much for having me today. Pleasure for pleasure to have you on the show. You're the author of The Leadership Triangle, Make You a Stronger Leader. Whenever I hear the word triangle, by the way, I refer to the complex uh, past relationship I've, I've had with like early girlfriends out of college where there was a triangle of love going on. <laughs> Tell Tell us about the leadership triangle and how that's uh, really what what triangle are you referring to? Well, you know, there are three um, default options that leaders tend to utilize when faced with problems. Um, and and this, this three-sided um, approach to solving problems can be intentional and uh, many times it's unintentional. Our book kind of helps people to look through the lenses of how do you naturally default when it, when you're faced with a with a problem? Do you find yourself approaching it as uh, problems are made to be resolved and they need to be resolved quickly? Um, are problems um, an opportunity to look beyond the apparent and to look to see what is hidden? Are uh, problems um, asking us to look deep within uh, the situation to see what values and norms and behaviors are at play. So our book is designed to ask the leader to look inside and take a breath, as it were, take a pause to see what is the type of problem he she is facing and which option is best to bring about a solution uh, to that problem. So it's a different kind of triangle from what you mentioned with um, your girlfriends in college. <laughs> Well, that's good to hear. I'm a leader myself, um, and I'm constantly faced with, with challenges. Um, and um, is your point to triangulate a lot of data about who you're trying to lead and to better understand them so you can be a better leader? Maybe you could comment on that. Yes. Um, at the end of um, um conversation with the the leader, we hope that the leader walks away with the ideas that help him or her to be effective in bringing about uh, solutions that result in in a a transformational outcome. In other words, uh, instead of a a quick fix solution or a solution that um, does nothing more than puts, as it were, the proverbial band-aid on a problem, we're looking for leaders to get to a, a place of expertise where he, she is able to actually bring about change in a permanent and positive way. 
Mm-hmm. So absolutely the results should be he, she is an effective, more effective leader. How do we learn to lead? There are two schools of thought, you know, when it comes to the idea of leadership. You know, the question uh, that is asked from each of the schools is one is, are leaders born <laughs> or are leaders made? We believe that if you start to look beyond leader, uh, the word leader, and start looking at leadership as a process, then every person has those leadership moments. And so since each person has those leadership moments, then every person can learn how to be more expert as a leader when that particular situation is appropriate for them to do the leading. Do most great leaders have a mentor above them and learn to lead well? Most, most, most great leaders, first of all, are those persons who are born with a certain uh, degree of awareness of self. And then through that awareness of self, they usually will find themselves a mentor or guru or some trusted advisor or advisors who throughout their life and throughout the stages and throughout the changes, they tap into those persons for their input and their advice. So most great leaders are themselves willing to be led by others. You've heard the expression, do as I say, don't, don't do it. Do, do, what is it? Do as I say, don't do as I do. Right, right. Can you comment on the accuracy of that statement when it comes to people that don't have good leadership abilities yet understand what are bad leadership decisions? The leaders, the lead, you know, as somebody has also said, you know, people uh, uh, follow you not because of what you say, but more so because of what they see in you. In fact, I have the wonderful privilege of spending time with uh, – General Colin Powell, right? and what an amazing speaker and, and quite, the, um, quite the insightful individual up close and personal. He just really is, you know? Mm-hmm. And he said, he said, you know, he said, what always impressed him and inspired him was the fact that men would follow you, follow you, all right? As when they see you as an authentic leader, they will follow you. And he said it. He said, they will follow you even though they know they are facing possible death. He says the sign of a good leader is one where he, she has developed and those that would follow the trust and the confidence so much so that they indeed will follow. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not about, you know, just saying things and it's not just about doing things. It's more so about who they see you as far as how you live. Are you living things? And once they see you living that, people will follow you, as, as, as General Powell says, even to their death. There are many people that are forced into leadership positions. Um, I'll comment on one such situation where somebody's so good at what they do on, as an individual contributor, they're asked to take it to the next level and lead others to be as good as they were. Can you talk about that difficulty of the transition into leadership for some people and how your book might help to solve that, that challenge? Yeah. Uh, you know, you're hitting on a very important aspect, um, I think, for the U.S. in particular. I think a, a lot of our uh, socialization in recent years has probably served to create quite the, um, quite the lack of 
prominent and uh, heroic historical leadership. You know, we haven't had in recent times the unique individuals who have just come to the forefront and, and people really, really know that this is a great leader. And I think the part of that is that we have somehow lost the, the art of what I call the leader-leader, you know, practice. And by that, what I mean is that the authentic leaders of the past devoted themselves not to creating followers, but developing other leaders. And so for leaders to come forward, we need the leaders today to position themselves as leader-leaders that what they ought to be spending more and more of their time on is helping the persons who actually are leaders and waiting, as it were, to come forward to be leaders in practice. And in most of the organizations where we work, we find leaders, but we don't find a lot of leader leaders, people who are devoted and dedicated to helping others discover their own leadership capacity. And that's where the dirge is occurring. That's why fewer leaders are coming forward, and that's why many leaders... Uh, are probably not being the leaders that they should and could and would be because we just haven't created that environment. Hmm. What motivates leaders to be leaders? Money? <laughs> praise? <All right. laughs> so the fact that you said money and praise disqualifies my definition of leader because yeah. the, 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 the leader... Uh, the authentic leader, the inspirational leader, the transformational leader is not motivated by money or fame. They are are motivated by need, the need of those persons that they would serve and the need within themselves to resolve or solve a problem. Those are the great leaders who find themselves compelled to take on the task of, of leading in a uh, a people to become recognized as as, as equal, or or leading, you know, uh, in the face of uh, short short death and destruction, you know, on the beaches of Normandy. These are the these are the, the the instances where leadership comes forward, where there is a need that's compelling to the individual because they see the needs of others, and they themselves are compelled to be the one to um, to supply that need. Leaders come forward out of need. Their own how does culture... Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. How, how does culture play into leadership, both positively and negatively? Um, well, you know, if you look at essentially brought culture in, if we start to think of culture in terms of individualistic and, and collectivistic, uh, then we understand that how leadership may look in one culture uh, would be different from how it may look in another culture, you know? Um, the reality is, though, we have, regardless of which culture you go to, you will find that leadership is prominent. Now, how it looks, like I say, for example, in a matriarchal culture, you know, you're likely to see what? You're likely to see where there is this presence of women who are either the informal or the, the person sitting in the seat of influence, you know, as in as in a, a Latin culture, you know, where it's really the mother, it's really the, 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 the woman in the house that really is the strength of that family and the, and the, the undergirding of that, that man that goes out and brings the bread and brings home the baker, you know? 
in a in a collectivistic, more collectivistic culture, you may never hear a leader stand up and speak of himself. You'll hear him speaking of his group. You'll hear her speaking of her group. And so leadership would look different, but it's present in every single culture. Do the ideals of leaders make the culture, or does the culture itself have to force upon a leader to adjust their, their style? And I'm talking more here about corporate culture. Oh, man, that's a great question. And here's, here's, here's my answer on that. Any effective leader will directly impact the culture of an organization. He or she cannot, will not be recognized and will not serve as an effective leader unless they have a personal imprint upon that culture. Now, having said that, we write about this in our book, all right? Having said that, the leader who will impact an organizational culture must be very, very aware of the code of that culture. And he, she will be careful not to violate that code in that culture. There's a wonderful woman who turned out to be, as according to the, um, the press, the, the top 10 worst CEO of all times. She used to be the CEO for HP, Hewlett Packard. But when she came in, she was hailed to be uh, a brilliant woman and had been up to that point as, as a leader. But she came into HP, and through her decision, she violated the core of HP. And for the first time in HP's existence, 15,000 employees were laid off. Never happened before. It violated the code that HP established itself on the premise that we are a family. This organization treats its employees as family. And so families do not lay off their employees. But through her decisions, they did. And she got fired. And it's in history now as among the top 10 worst. CEOs of all time. You cannot violate the code, but you must, in a tactful and a thoughtful way, impact the culture. Well, Marissa Mayer is kind of violating some cultural values over at Yahoo, and she hasn't been uh, thrown out of, <laughs> of the ring yet. She's she's terminated all employees that work at home, for example. Um, you know, and and told people you have to move into an office or or, or get out. She's she's shaking the ground up. I mean, there are countless examples of counterculture activity with with strong leaders, um, mm-hmm. and of course, board members love strong leaders to come in and kick some ass and terminate some people as well. But I'm interested to ask you. <laughs> I'm, I'm interested to ask you about um, the this sort of code of the culture. Doesn't a leadership, doesn't a strong leader, particularly a strong leader coming into a company new for the first time, have to sh- have to establish their own code of culture? Uh, now, let's not confuse the two. When I speak of code, I'm talking about the very core and the DNA of, of, uh, of an organization, okay? So when you look at um, um, Apple computers, for example, okay, there's an absolute code, and the code has more to do with you know, setting the, 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 the standard for creative technology advances, you know, something along those lines is that the code there at, um, at Apple, okay? And, and you saw what happened, you know, when and Steve was there and then he got fired and he left and they, and, and, and they went down and, oh, let's bring him back and they brought him back and then we got all these wonderful things happening. 
Okay? So, um, and he, of all people, as you know, was not known as a, as a touchy, feely, soft, and gentle guy. So he, you know, what did you say just now? You used the A word. What did he do? He kicked some, you know? He did, over and over again. But he didn't violate the code of Apple. If anything, he was doing that to reinstate or, or to reinforce the code. So, yes, what I'm saying is that the leader who will be effective in an organization will come in, will know and recognize that code. And, yes, they may be hard-nosed, they may be hard-driven, they may satisfy the board, and they may do all those things. But once they do not cross that line, they can be successful and they can be effective. But I can tell you, it's a death toll if you violate the code of an organization. It's a death toll. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about environments that you've seen where leaders suck, <laughs> where, <laughs> where leaders are late to meetings and blow customer employees off and even are negligent with deliverables to clients and are, uh, yeah. desks are a mess and, you know, they're not people that you look up to or respect yet. They are in those CEO positions. What's your, mm-hmm. what's your take on that? You know, um, as far as the, how that trickles down into the culture of the company. Um, what, what, what is your thinking in that regard? You know, I, I heard the examples you draw just now about, you know, um, them being late for meeting and all of that. Those are not the, those are offenses. The most detrimental offense I've seen as I've worked with hundreds of companies and obviously Fortune 500 companies around the world, the worst offense I see the, the CEO or, or executives making is this incredible sense of entitlement, okay? Incredible sense of entitlement uh, where he, she comes in and what they want to do is as much as possible fly below the radar, okay? Uh, be guilty of non-decisions, be as, as, as political as they can be, uh, and every else, everybody else that reports to them are taking the brunt of the responsibility of trying to keep this organization going. It's too often that the chief executive officer is, is guilty of what I call the fatal behaviors that comes from, first of all, entitlement. Okay, I've gotten a job now, and all I want to do is preserve my income, and I want to just continue to just, you know, exist as CEO. I'm not going to make any decisions that changes the world or changes anything, but just keep the money flowing, okay? And, and I'll tell you, as you said before, that actually empowers them with the board because, I mean, at the end of the day, most boards want to know what? That they're making money. So they don't mind if they're making money, and the people down the line are suffering because decisions are not being made on time, all right? Bad decisions are being made that they are then charged with trying to correct or trying to... Uh, dilute or trying to, you know, diminish its impact, all right? Too often the greatest offense that's happening is we end up with a CEO who is a non-decision maker who is on the ride for cruise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, that, that, that is a uh, – have, have, in your experience, have you really tried to gauge the amount of stress that goes on in an environment with poor leadership? Is there a stress factor on an oh, organization? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And is that measurable? It, can you actually measure that? I'll tell you what you do. 
okay? Because this is what we do, all right? I, when I'm invited to an organization for the first time, all right, one of the things I do is I do the whole management by walking around thing, okay? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to get there earlier than my meeting because I want to ride the elevator. I want to go up and down the escalator. I want to go in the bathrooms. I just, I'm just, I'm just walking around. I had an experience um, that I usually tell, and, and I kind of anonymize for all kinds of reasons. But I went on uh, to this particular uh, prominent healthcare organization. Uh, everybody would know this place, and everybody respects this place. All right, but I was doing one of those management by walking around things, and I went. I got into the crowded elevator, and everybody's in the elevator. You know, I mean nurses, etc. all out of the elevator, and we're going up, and it stops on the floor. And I already made friendly with everybody in the elevator, you know, because that's, that's what I'm doing. And in walks this young doctor, and he has his telescope around his neck, and he has his smock on, and his name's on his smock, you know, his white jacket there. And he walks in and says, good morning, you know. I said, I said, you get ready to go and save some lives today? And he turns around me, around me, looks at me, with a smuggler, he says, I don't know about that. He says, I don't know about that. And everybody on the airplane, uh, on the, on the, um, the, um, the elevator, in unison, in unison, there was this chorus of, oh, it was so deflating. Yeah. So I, so I intentionally stayed on the elevator after he got off. And as I looked around, people were shaking their heads. They could not believe what had just happened. Hmm. But he is a leader in every respect of the word. He is a leader. Hmm. So the leader must really actually be acutely aware that there is no time, no moment, when you are not expected to demonstrate leadership if you have an official and formal position as leader. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Quick, uh, quick, interesting story about that or question on that is, let's say the CEO of the company learned of that problem that you experienced mm-hmm. on the elevator, which I'm sure you probably did. It was probably a catalyst for you to, uh, you know, to, to basically say, let me show you an example of what the problems are in your company right now, right? But what do you do with a situation like that? You know, do you... Do you pull that one doctor aside and and or and single them out and say, "Here's a bad case," oh. or or do you oh. stay big picture and and oh. work through slide decks and examples and speaking no. forums to say, because those are two opposite extremes. How do you solve that particular leader's problem if you're on the top of the I ladder? Love, I love I love this question. I love this question. It's a great, great, great question. Let me tell you why, because this. There are three options here, remember? This is what the book's about, okay? The one option we could take is a tactical one, right? We could, we could write down his name, we could report him to the authorities, and they can disappear him, right? And, hey, we've approached the problem. We've, we've addressed the problem. But that's a tactical problem. And what, and what did we do with that? What, what did we really solve, you know? Okay, because we could look away and say, got that handle, but there's, there's, there's more here. There's more here. Why? Because the moment that occurred to me, or occurred in my, my experience, I started thinking, now, what in this environment, what in this structure takes and prescribes that kind of attitude, that kind of behavior? 
now we're getting to the transformational question. What can I bring to this organization to help them that more and more of their young doctors get on that elevator? And instead of being in that downtrodden state, that thinking, thinking position, what can I do? What is it in this environment that we need to change to change that attitude? That's transformational, and that's what we address, and that's how we use that. So another interesting question is bad decisions by major companies and corporations. For example, decisions to have employees start paying for their own personal phones, for example, or deciding corporate policies that everybody's got to stay in hotel rooms for $60 a night when they had been used to and accustomed to staying in hotels for three to $500 a night at the finest you know, hotels when they were traveling, particularly executives. Um, these are decisions that are made by leaders, you know, CEOs, maybe backed by boards, maybe backed by finance departments. How do you, how do you sort of come, how do you handle a bad leadership decision like that? Um, let's say in this case, the company is making hundreds of millions of dollars of profit, yet the CEO decides they want the employees to suffer and to pay more into the company. Do you view that as a bad decision? Is that a, is that a leadership problem? Maybe you could talk about that. Yeah, but let's, let, let me approach it from just how do, you, how, how do you disappoint people at a rate that they can tolerate? Because that's what great leadership is about. You know, uh, because, you know, sometimes, yes, for financial reasons, you have to make what is a, a, a uh, hurtful decision uh, for employees. And sometimes as a leader, you make a decision that uh, on, in, in many circles is unpleasant. Uh, so the leader must then um, become an expert at how to deliver bad news in a way that people continue to be engaged and people continue um, to give their best effort and to feel valued, okay, because that, that's what I'm hearing you address here. Uh-huh. Um, most leaders are not equipped for it, all right? Most, most, most leaders... Uh, will will try as hard as they can to either have somebody else do it, or if they are forced to do it, won't so well. Here's what we know. Uh, whenever there is a decision that is going to injure in any which way, the psyche, the emotion, uh, or the pocketbooks of individual employees, uh, that decision, that message needs to be handled through uh, a lens of where's the greatest trust, Okay, so sometimes that means that um, you have to answer it from um, you have to answer you have to answer um, that by by having someone in the trusted circle deliver the information, okay, or deliver the message. Or sometimes it means to instead of outright delivering the message, uh, it means to have laid groundwork in ways so that people are ready to be your partners around it. So instead of saying we're going to reduce, you know, your your stipend, you know, from $300 for a room per night to $6 per night. Um, the conversation easily go, um, this is a real need for us to look at where we spend our monies all right, going forward. We could continue to spend the $300 a night, or we could, um, well, and if we do that, we'll have to take monies away from uh, the level of food service we provide you know, for breakfast in the morning or for uh, the upkeep of the, of the parking garage or whatever else 
is going to be impacted. So the, the nutshell, Byron, the most effective leaders learn how to be expert at disappointing people at a rate that they can tolerate. Mm-hmm. Such a great answer, and I hope there are CEOs out there listening to that answer. It, it, is, it is an art, frankly. Um, and mm-hmm. remember that good leadership is, 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 of course, as you talked about today, is you know, motivating people, you know, being the, the peak of that wave of motivation, um, you know, lifting the crest of that wave even higher. Those are arts. And when you, when you, when you crash that wave you know, with, with disappointment, it's very difficult to recover from that, don't you think? Absolutely. 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 Probably to a point of no return, where literally mm. there's such a revolt that people mm. are just, you know, massive turnover, massive quits, people quitting. I mean, that's often when you're probably brought in to, to a company yeah. for, you know, for a rescue mission, whereupon you conclude you need to change leadership. Or, or change, change the way they do leadership. Yeah. Yeah. Change the way yeah. they do leadership. Yeah. 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 And with such big egos, yeah. it's sometimes difficult for people to change. Don't you agree? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And those are the ones that don't get help. But um, I am happy to say that in my experience, you know, more, far more than fewer, uh, in a learning mode, they don't feel complete yet. They know they have growth to do, and they're willing to, to go through the pain of growing. And that, that's a good thing. You know, that's an absolute good thing. You know? Can and that's, and that's the gist of it. Sorry, that's just the leadership, you know? How, how yes. do I grow? I'm more and more self-aware. Yeah. Well, we really enjoyed having you on the show today. Thanks so much about talking with us. Thank you so much for giving me a chance to talk about my, my new book, Leadership Trial, and my very new book, uh, Your Intentional Difference. Both of those can be accessed at um, uh, www.intentionaldifference.me. Right. Fantastic. You're also speaking at the Miami Book Fair on the 23rd at 11 a.m., is that correct? That's correct. And I'll, I'll be introducing my, my latest book, uh, Your Intentional Difference. Everybody, everybody, Byron, everybody uh, has a 5% zone that's unique. You know, we believe 85% of, of what you do, anybody is capable of doing. 10% of what you do, a few people, all right, select people, can learn to do it and do it. But 5% of what you do, the way you do the broadcast, the way you lead this radio show, that's yours. That's your unique 5% zone, and that's your intentional difference. That's your idea. That's the new book. That's what we're going to talk about. How can you unleash that 5% zone? I'm motivated. I'm excited. I can't wait to, to dive deeper into the book and get to know you more through your book. Life Tips will be right back after this short break. Ever wondered how you could have access to your own SEO expert, paid search specialist, or social media wizard? Looking for help with your affiliate, display media, or email marketing? Look no further than the folks at Fang Digital Marketing. Fang Digital specializes in both paid and organic search, social media, display, and mobile advertising solutions, and is staffed by industry veterans from Google, Yahoo, and one of the industry's most influential PPC experts. Fang Digital's award-winning staff stays on top of the latest in digital trends and offer tailored solutions so they can audit your progress and build a roadmap to your success. Learn more about their expanding range of full-service strategic marketing solutions at fangdigital.com. That's F-A-N-G digital.com. 
If you're constantly struggling to find more customers, revenue, or hours in the day, Infusionsoft can help you have the business you've always wanted. For over 10 years, Infusionsoft has been helping business owners just like you find the financial freedom and peace of mind you've been searching for. I'm Scott Martineau, co-founder of Infusionsoft. If you're struggling to find more customers, more revenue, or more hours in the day, Infusionsoft is the proven solution you're looking for. Infusionsoft, the only all-in-one sales and marketing software created specifically for small businesses. Learn more at www.infusionsoft.com slash radio. Johnson, what's this mantis I keep hearing about? Do we need to call an exterminator? No, sir. Moby Mantis is our new SMS marketing tool. SM what? SMS, text messaging. Moby Mantis lets us communicate directly with our customers in real time. We can send promos, coupons. It even lets our customers market for us by sharing offers with their friends online. It's been great for business. Hmm, sounds expensive. Actually, I sign us up for an extended free trial. It hasn't cost us a dime. Good work, Johnson. I guess the only thing we'll be exterminating is the competition. To get your free extended trial of Moby Mantis, text RADIO to 21691. That's RADIO to 21691 for Moby Mantis. Best Search Strategies. Where our hosts, Jamie Smith and Brian Lewis, discuss state-of-the-art search strategies and tools to help search marketers increase conversion and lower costs. Best Search Strategies. On demand anytime inside the Search Engine Optimization Channel. Only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And now back to Life Tips. Making your life smarter, better, faster, and wiser. Here are your hosts. Welcome back to the Tips Show, everyone. Byron White here with Carl Hart. Dr. Hart, welcome. Thank you for having me, man. Appreciate uh, you being here. So <clears throat> we're going to try to turn the entire uh, world of, of addiction upside down in the way we think about it today, which will be an interesting challenge. But um, And I'm going to call you Carl, if that's okay. Can I call you Carl? Cool. Yeah. <laughs> that is what we need to do. We need to get together as a team here, Carl, you and I, to try to tackle this challenge that you've spent several, many, many years trying to sort out. Tell us about your book, High Profile. Um, and, 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 you know, this is too open a question, but let's just talk about the name for a second. High Price. Yeah, Tell so High Price. High Price and, and the thinking behind that. So the, the name High Price uh, comes from this, this it play on, you know, um, when people smoke uh, marijuana or any other drug, use any drug, they get high. So the price to get high is too high. That's one play on it. And then the price that we're pl- paying for our current approach, um, particularly our drug policies, is just too high for the American people. So it's, it's a play on multiple things. And the price that I paid as a scientist to tell this story is also too high. Now, your story is quite interesting, and, um, and, and, and if you will, it's, it's disruptive, if I can use that word. In how well, you'll people... have to break that down, man, disruptive. <laughs> yeah, I know, it's heavy. Um, it's disruptive perhaps in the sense that it's making us think a little bit about um, addiction differently, and, and more importantly, how we're treating it and how, uh, how, how you have perhaps discovered something um, that is quite quite interesting and quite revealing, and that being namely that uh, the way we think about addiction and, and, and even in viewing people that are addicts is, is, is wrong. Can you describe that to the audience? 
Yeah, there are multiple things in that question. It's a great question. Um, one of the things that people often think about when they think of people who use drugs like crack cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, they think that any use is addiction or abuse, when in fact the vast majority of people who use these drugs don't meet criteria for addiction. They pay their taxes, they go to work, um, um, they do all the things that responsible people do. So that's one thing. And then when we think about the people who actually meet criteria, let's say the 10 to 20% of the people who actually meet criteria for addiction, we think about those people uh, and you think about the fact that the majority of the people who use these drugs don't meet criteria for addiction, it tells you that uh, people are addicted not because of some special property of the drug or everyone or the majority of people would be addicted. It tells you that something else is going on and it allows us to focus our efforts more precisely on what the problems are. And those problems can be co-occurring psychiatric disorders like depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, or they could be lack of alternative or, or, or lack of opportunities, lack of skills, less, lack of responsibility, a wide range of reasons. And so it helps us to just focus our efforts a lot better. Mm. One of the phrases that I wanted to ask you about is alternative reinforcers. Um, this is really the underlining contention, I think, of the book, and but I'd like you to exp- – I might be wrong in that, and please tell me if I am – but. Um, I'd like you to tell me a little bit about alternative reinforcers and why alternative reinforcers are perhaps a better way to, for, to treat people rather than putting in, in this more uh, you know, dark and gloomy camp of, of addiction and problematic and you are a problem, we need to nip this at the bud. Tell us about alternative reinforcers that are perhaps a new gateway to think about addiction. So when we think of alternative reinforcers, they're just simply attractive alternatives to drug use. Um, when I first started studying drugs, I, I was study, uh, studying laboratory animals, and one of the things that I was first told was that, and not seeing the papers, one of the things that was clear was that when animals are allowed to self-administer a drug like cocaine or methamphetamine, they will do so until they die. But when you look at these experiments more carefully, the animal is the only and the only thing in the cage with the animal is the lever to press the drug for the drug, and there's nothing else in, in the cage. And so, of course, if you have no alternatives, the only option is the drug. Yeah, of course you'll take the drug until you die if you're an animal. But when you uh, supply this animal with other animals, a sexually receptive mate, um, uh, running wheel, alternatives in the cage, they don't take the drug until they die. In fact, they engage in these other behaviors, these alternative behaviors. We did the same thing with humans. We brought crack cocaine addicts in the lab, and we provided them with alternatives. People who were said to be addicted to the drug so badly that they wouldn't respond to anything but the drug. When you provide them with something like as low as a $5 alternative to a hit of cocaine, they will take the money on half of the occasions. But when you increase that money to something like $20, they never take the drug. So these alternatives become important. And then you can do this out in the clinic, and we've seen this where people, when they have alternatives, they choose these alternatives if they are attractive, just like you and me. You and I could be doing something else right now, but this is a lot more fun, uh, this conversation, than some of the other things that I can be doing. So that's why I'm here. (laughs) Right on. And this is really very exciting to talk with you about. I want to ask uh, what might be a a stupid question in this, but is is your belief that 
that, you know, do addicts really want to stop the addiction in your mind? Like, is that something you believe in out of you? I, I don't know. You know, I have to, uh, I have to look at the individual person because at some level, uh, people who are addicted to drugs and they're chasing the drug and that's what they're doing, that's the best alternative. That is the best option that they have before them. So I, I don't know. Whereas in other cases, there are people who actually want to stop abusing the drug and they want to do something else. Um, and so they sometimes they have these psychiatric illnesses that prevent them. Other times they just um, don't have the skill set to say no. Or uh, um, so there'll be there could be a variety of reasons. But we need to look at the person, the individual. Mm-hmm. I want to ask about the social element here because that seems to be a driver for a lot of what you're talking about. And I just want to insert one little snippet for you, to, you know, that's, that's supportive of the theory that the social element perhaps is, is a major driver, as it turns out. My wife um, volunteers for an organization in Boston called Second Step, which focuses on mentoring um, uh, uh, abused women um, that have been abused in, in a variety of ways, not not just sexually, but but other ways as well. Um, and in her experience that she's conveyed to me, has really shows this this sort of power of alternative reinforcements, and that the person that she was mentoring is now like uh, has transformed her way of thinking because of the exposure to my wife. Um, and, you know, maybe not just my wife, but because of the program, let's say, um, are you, are there any program, any mentoring programs that dive into this social element where, where people are being, you know, exposed to new social elements and environments as part of any, any of the neuroscientific, uh, work that you've done? Are, are you, are you seeing that social elements are, are a real driver here? Well, there are there's some really good research going on in this area. For example, I have a colleague at Johns Hopkins uh, uh, University at the medical school. His name is Ken Silverman. Uh, he's doing some work in which he is, uh, for example, people who are addicted to uh, cocaine, crack cocaine, or and other drugs. He is. Um, Given them an opportunity to learn work skills. So in order to gain access to the workplace, um, they have to submit a drug-free urine. And, but once they do that, they receive a certain amount of money that escalates with every consecutive day of a drug-free urine. And then when they're in the workplace, they get uh, additional monies for um, uh, meeting certain productivity criteria. And they also get money for professionalism, for dress, and those kinds of things. So in in this way, he is shaping up uh, work skill behaviors that will become marketable for these people. And, And he's seeing a lot of success with that. And other programs are trying to do similar sort of things. But uh, the people who run these programs have to be savvy in order to know which behaviors to reinforce appropriately. Mm-hmm. Mm. Really interesting stuff. The, tell us a little bit about the tension with Congress and, and, and getting programs like yours and others funded. Um, what does Congress want to hear and what are they willing to write checks for and how does that differ from what, what conclusions you're reaching? Well, the thing is, it's just that the people in Congress are just as ignorant as most of the American public when it comes to drugs. And so one of the things that people think about when it comes to drugs is that uh, there's, there are a number of views. And one of the views is that it's just some moral failing, and we have had enough with these people. And then in the, in the, another extreme is that um, 
we want to say to take the responsibility off of the people or to blame away from people. We want to say that it's all in their brain. It is the brain disease. Both of those things are extremes on the extremes, and they're, they're and I think they're incorrect personally. And so I, and I think the data shows that there 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 are limited data to support either one of those perspectives. And so it's appealing to Congress. It makes them feel better if there it's a brain disease. Uh, on the one hand, but when we say it's just a brain disease, then we uh, forget to deal with all the environmental factors that also play a role. Like people don't have jobs, people have no skills. All of these things determine whether someone be- will become addicted as well. And so, in the book High Price, I'm trying to educate the pub the public to to the point where we say. We shouldn't blame people. We should actually help people. And we don't need to say that it's a brain disease in order to take the blame away from them. Hmm. Here's the tension that I see, right? And particularly with your example um, in the book that talks about, um, you know, the patients that you brought into a hospital environment and you, you were feeding them actually crack in this hospital environment or they were smoking crack, they didn't know, they were blindfolded. A really cool way you did it, by the way. Brilliant, brilliant, the, the way you did this. I mean, it's incredible. But they had to make decisions, you know. And so I'll give you $5 or, you know, I'll give you $20. You can't, you can't get it today, but you can get it in two weeks. Do you think you could buy your way out of, of addiction? Was that perhaps part of this exercise? Do you think that you could pay people not to take drugs? I mean, is that was that one of the contentions, or, or is that? No, that's a great point. Um, that's not what we were trying to do. What we were testing was the, this notion that people have. It's like if you give someone a sample dose, a priming dose of co- crack cocaine, and they are crack cocaine addicts, they are so irrational. They are so driven by the drug that they cannot make rational decisions not to take the drug. And so we simply want to show that that's not true. Drug-taking behavior is malleable. You can manipulate it if you have the appropriate alternatives. That's all we wanted to show. Mm-hmm. Now, there are people who are showing Ken Silverman, like I'm saying, like I'm saying what he's yep. doing is using money to shape behaviors that are marketable. And if yep. you shape behaviors that are marketable, now you give people... Uh, a raison d'etre, a reason for being other than the drug itself. And if you have marketable skills, one of the things that you will do is you'll make sure that you can make money and so that even if you want to use drugs periodically, you need to have money, and this is a way to do it. Yeah. Let's take, let's take for example, the, the guy, uh, Mr. Ford, who is the, 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 the mayor of Toronto. Mm-hmm. And maybe you've heard he oh, yeah. uh, yesterday admitted to have have used crack cocaine while he was in office. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the typical crack cocaine user, someone who is employed, someone who's responsible, paying their bills. We even saw it with Marion Barry, but the thing about Marion Barry in D.C. was that people were so sanctimonious and moralistic that they couldn't see the fact that this guy had been doing this, but he'd been running the city. The people of D.C. saw it because even after he was convicted for the drugs and so forth, he came back and won a re-election because they thought he was a good mayor, the people of D.C. That's the typical crack smoker, people who who are responsible, they go to work, and um, um, if you're going to be engaging in drug use, quite frankly, most of the people who engage in drug use, you've got to have the job because you need to buy drugs if that's one of the things you do. 
Same with alcohol users. Same with tobacco users. Mm-hmm. You know, crack is such a hard word, though. I mean, you know, for the for the for the yuppie crowd, you know, cocaine and snorting it, you know, that seems a little bit more. Uh, you know, sort of acceptable and mainstream, but the word crack has a negative flavor to it, has sort of a ghetto flavor to it. Would you agree with that? And, yeah. And is, yeah. is that wrong? Well, uh, certainly it, uh, it's wrong. It's not precise that's, uh, in, in that <laughs> rega- regard because more white people use crack cocaine than black mm-hmm. people, for example. Um, but we know how we got there. We got there because of this need to vilify this drug and the people who were associated with the drug, we thought were associated with the drug. In the 1980s, we did this image after image in the press and in, in all of these sort of TV shows, you saw black urbanites on a rampage to smoking cocaine. And that wasn't even the typical user. But the American public believed that was the typical user. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a drug, you know, that that is hard to understand. You know, the, the, the smoking of of of, of cocaine um, is it just a more much more powerful effect on your body than snorting cocaine? Can you help me understand that? Yeah, so it's not a drug that's hard to understand. In fact, crack cocaine's effects are predictable, just like shooting heroin, just like snorting cocaine. The effects are predictable. We under, we know quite a bit. We published tons of papers on this. Uh, my studies alone, we've given more than 2,000 doses of, of this drug with no incident. So it's quite, the effects are predictable. As you increase yeah. the dose, you get increasing effects. Um, the effects are relatively short-lived, unlike uh, amphetamines where the effects are longer. Um, it, it's not that difficult to understand. It's just the American mythology that makes it seem as though it's difficult to understand. We know quite a bit about crack cocaine. Interesting. You know, I used the word ghetto um, a second ago, and your story, personal story, is remarkable, okay? Can you even begin to summarize, you know, how you were able to um, have this environment around you that is jaw-dropping in reading some of about you, um, and how you were able to now become a world-famous uh, neuroscientist that is has breakthrough discoveries. I mean, unbelievable. Can you possibly comment on that or at least tell us a little bit about your own personal story? Uh, you know, it's a difficult one for me because, you know, when you go through this sort of process of uh, self-disclosure, it, it, you, it's a difficult one. You border on being frivolous or uh, mm-hmm. bragging. And so it's hard for me. To, the thing that I will say is that the environment in which I grew up in, um, like you point out, it was a difficult one. I grew up uh-huh. in the hood, the projects, and there were people doing drugs. Um, but there are people in white communities doing drugs. It's just that it, we just don't uh, see it the same. But it was certainly deprived my community. But there were some skills that I learned in that so under those sort of uh, deprived uh, situations that were that benefited me here. Um, I learned how to be mentally tough. I learned how to make sure that I attend to nonverbal behaviors. Um, um, and then I had a number of people who showed me a lot of love, even in that situation. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it helps me to remember some of the things that we say about those people who use drugs. I remember those are the same people who gave me pocket money, the same people who kept me out of trouble. Mm-hmm. So some of the sort of fantasies or the salacious stories that we say about these people 
I know is just simply inconsistent with human behavior, in part based on my experience growing up. So it helps me to interpret data a little differently. It helps me to ask questions that might be different from my colleagues. When you were growing up in, in, in Miami, um, literally in the ghetto, um, you know, were you recognized in your community as a brainchild as, you know, and, and, and gained actually the respect from the people around you that you were the smart cookie and the bookworm? And, um, you know, did, did you, do you remember experiences like that when you were younger? Not no, but hell no. <laughs> I was, uh, no, that's, that's not what I barely maintained a 2.0 GPA in high school. Really? No, no, I was uh, I was an athlete, and that was my main thing. I thought that would be my ticket out. Mm. Uh, no, I didn't really start to um, um, recognize my academic potential until I left this country and joined the military when I was over in England. Uh, over in England, it was it was nice to see the American sort of society based uh, or through the eyes of the British. So the yeah. British had no sort of reservations about criticizing us about our race relations, things that I kind of knew or felt in America, but I had no corroboration. But in England, I got corroboration. I went to college over in England, and they were, like I said, there was no, they had no reservations about criticizing us. But it really bolstered my sort of thinking, and it also uh, made me feel like I actually had some academic talent. Interesting. Um, you also attended the University of Maryland, correct, and got your BS in psychology there, and then went on to the University of Wyoming, which is another fascinating uh, journey for you out of the out of the streets of Miami. Tell us about that, and 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 what was Wyoming like for you? And I was was that after England? I guess I was. Right yeah, so the, I went to Wyoming after completing my undergraduate studies because the guy who I worked with as an undergraduate, he had gone to the University of Wyoming and did his PhD, and so. Uh, Wyoming was the only university that accepted me into the PhD program in neuroscience. So um, I went, and it was a great experience academically because there is little for a black kid from the projects to do in Laramie, Wyoming, which is the whitest state, <laughs> by the way. And so I, I, I studied um, uh, all the time when I was in Laramie, Wyoming, and it, it's, it's, pay, it's paid off tremendously because um, I was in the library while other people were at the cowboy bar. Um, <laughs> and I, um, um, I got better at my craft as a result. Terrific story. Similar one here, just on a side note. I applied to graduate school at uh, San Diego. I got in San Diego State and, and the London School of Economics, and I went to visit San Diego State and partied down on Mission Mission Bay for like a week, and I just said to myself, if I go to school here, that my, I will not even graduate from grad school. I, I need to go to rainy London. <laughs> so I, I can certainly relate to that. Um, uh, tell, tell us a little bit about some of your your interest now, what are you doing, uh, you know, with your research? Where are you taking uh, the high price, uh, you know, uh, mo movement, shall we say, in, 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 your, in your intellectual pursuits? So these days what I'm, I'm interested in are drug combinations. Um, usually what we've done in our laboratory studies have been to study one drug at a time. Um, but sometimes, uh, or oftentimes, in the real world, people do multiple drugs at the same time. So I'm interested in 
uh, drug combinations like Oxycontin in combination with methamphetamine, uh, alcohol in combination with methamphetamine. So I'm interested in each drug combinations now. Do you feel there's going to be some real breakthrough with drug addiction because of efforts like yours and other people's in the country? You mentioned some colleagues like Ken Silverman. Are, are we getting close to a breakthrough? I, I think so. I, I think that we have some sophisticated behavioral technologies. But the problem is, is that um, we are still enamored with brain imaging and the brain and that sort of thing when we could look at how people are behaving and we can eat more malleable, behavior is more malleable or we have more access to the behavior. But I think as long as we are enamored with these brain imaging sort of studies, uh, it's hard to see all of the sort of advances in behavioral technology that, that are going on r around us, like the studies that you described that I'm doing with the crack cocaine users and offering them $5 and so forth, we ran those studies back in the 90s. And mm -hmm. only now are they, people are starting to recognize it because I wrote a book that, con that made contact with the general public. And so one of the things that I would encourage other scientists to do is make contact with the general public. That's not what we usually do. Mm -hmm. um, but if we don't, this kind of work just never makes it to the forefront. Hmm. Well, I know that you're, um, you have uh, uh, some promotion coming up um, at the Miami uh, Book Show. Tell us a little bit about that, what you're going to be speaking about. And I know that you're appearing on uh, Saturday, November 23rd at 12 o'clock at the Miami Book Fair. Um, and you're, you're talking on a panel, the Moral, the Moral Center panel. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, uh, it's the Miami Book Fair, and I'm I'm from Miami, so I'm excited to go back to Miami. Exactly, and, and um, uh, that's why I agreed to do this. Um, I do it in front of hometown folks, and even before that Saturday, the Thursday before, I will speak to a group of college students, honor students at Miami Dade. Uh, college, and um, I'll talk to them about my research, about uh, my time in Miami, and uh, maybe help to provide a blueprint for how some of them can be successful. Um, so I always agree to do things in Miami because um, that's, that's home. Hmm. Have you, you know, you talked about taking your research to to the public. Have you thought about taking your research to addicts <laughs> and Educating them on what's happening to them? Uh, you know, one of the things that I would high price the book, I wanted to make sure that people understood that this book is not about addiction. Uh, one of the problems in the country is that there is a disproportion. Whenever we talk about drugs like cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, there's a disproportionate focus on addiction, and that's inappropriate, and that's why we are partly screwed up in our views about drugs. The vast majority of people who use these drugs are not addicts. My major focus when we think about the public is keeping people safe who use these drugs. Let me give you an example. When we think about heroin overdose, we think about uh, how people die from heroin overdose. 75% of the people who die from a heroin-related death do so because they combine the drug with alcohol. Now, that means that only a small percentage of these folks actually die from the drug heroin. So the public health message, education message should be, if you're going to use heroin, please don't combine it with another sedative like alcohol. That should be blasted out to the public. That's what I'm trying to do with the public. 
when it comes to methamphetamine, I'm trying to encourage people to make sure that if you take a methamphetamine, one of the things that this drug does really well is disrupt sleep. Make sure that you get sleep. Make sure that you are taking the drug at a time that's not near bedtime. And make sure you're eating when you're on that drug. All of these things will keep people safe. And we won't have as many of these drug-related tragedies that we have in the country. And so that's where most of my outreach efforts are going, to keep the majority of drug users safe. Interesting. And what what if... Can you imagine a day when this education that you just mentioned, for example, was mainstream within every socioeconomic, uh, you know, class and status? It's just knowledge, right? It's just that, knowledge. How right. do we how do we get that knowledge out to people? How do you do that? Well, that's what the, that was the goal of High Price and shows like yours. Um, you bring me on. Um, people will have access to this because once people know, it's hard to stop them, and that's what we're trying to do. I mean, for they've been misled for so long, but a lie cannot last forever, and this lie is is slowly coming down. When you have the Attorney General in the United States uh, a couple months ago saying that the Justice Department will no longer enforce mandatory minimum drug sentences. That is major. When the, the U.S. Attorney says that the way we have been enforcing our drug laws have been racist, no other U.S. Attorney has ever said that before. Now, when uh, I think he said it in part because of books like mine, because of books like Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. So I think that this lie is the, the, the emperor. We know now the emperor has no clothes. We know that these um, uh, lies can't last forever. And so I think that we're in a moment. And there are states who have legalized marijuana for recreational purposes. There are states that have moved to decriminalize marijuana. I'm asking that we decriminalize all drugs. And so I think that we will continue to gain momentum because the evidence is on the side of being rational. The evidence says that we should educate people. Well, we need a drug lord like you. <laughs> um, it's, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show today, Dr. Carl Hart. I really want to thank you. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. It was fun chatting with you today. Until next week, everybody, I hope uh, your life's a little smarter, better, faster, and wiser, particularly to, as, it, as it relates to the many topics we talked about today, about how to educate your way through betterment when it comes to thinking about drugs. Um, Dr. Carl Hart, once again, will be appearing at the 2013 Amy Book Fair. Uh, please catch him along with uh, some other colleagues of his at 12 o'clock on Saturday, the 23rd at, at uh, the Miami Book Fair. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. We'll see you next week. This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.WebmasterRadio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.